I, uh, I get the prosperity gospel. I don't agree with it, but I get it. And I get why people are drawn to it. There's a certain logic to it. After all, Psalm 1 tells us that the person who delights in the law of the Lord, why everything that he does will prosper. And if he was pierced for our transgressions so that by his stripes we're healed, shouldn't we expect to be healed? And if though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich, well, shouldn't you expect economic stability throughout your life? If, as the theologians tell us, all the problems of our lives ultimately have their root and genesis in being alienated from God, and Jesus came to reconcile us to God, to reconcile you to God, shouldn't our problems be no more? Maybe some of you have asked some of those questions, maybe not out loud. Maybe some of you are formulating answers to them in your mind as I ask them. Here's the truth, though. If you live long enough, no matter how great your faith is, you will have something come into your life that will shake you to the core that will make you think something here is wrong. Uh, Either Jesus isn't who I thought he was, or God isn't who I thought he was, or I've deceived myself into thinking that God cares about me. Because I've got this idea in my mind, this model of how it should all work, and what I'm encountering now, it doesn't fit. It happened to Jesus' disciples. When they began to realize, when it began to dawn on them, that the kingdom that he spoke of looked nothing like they had imagined. That nothing in their world, in terms of their station in life, of their place, of laws or rulers, none of that was going to change. I want to read to you today from John chapter 13, verses 21 through 32. Jesus is sitting at the last Passover with his disciples. And after Jesus had spoken these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified, I tell you the truth, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one 
to whom I will give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, son of Simon. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. What you are about to do, do quickly, Jesus told him. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the feast or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out. And it was night. When he was gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself and will glorify him at once. And Father, I pray that in this dark world and in the darkness that some of your people here have faced and experienced, that, Father, we would, uh, we, we would see that even the darkness is as light to you. And help us to walk in your light. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This morning we read um, a responsive reading from Psalm 139. And if you've got your bulletin, I'd like you to look at page 5, and um, I'll give you an assignment for this afternoon. I want to encourage you this afternoon to commit to memory verses 11 and 12. Those are the two verses uh, on page 5. And in fact, what I'd like to ask you to do is to say them with me now in unison. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, And the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day. For darkness is as light to you. I look back over the time that I've walked with Christ. And following Jesus is not what I expected it to be. When I first came to faith in him. I suppose that's true for just about everything in life, isn't it? You, you get done with school and you go off to college and you may have a good experience or not so good experience, but it's probably not exactly like you were picturing it to be. And you get your first job or you get a new job and it might be good, but it's not exactly like what you were envisioning it to be. Or you've gotten married, and, well, it's not exactly like you expected it to be. Or you've had kids. Has anybody had kids that it's turned out that it's been the way you expected it to be? It's always different than we expect, sometimes radically so. When following Jesus is not what you expect... How will you respond? 
Well, John tells us and the other gospel writers as well uh, how Judas responded. Tells us that Judas betrayed him. It's obvious, you know, as I, as I think through what it must have been like for Judas and the other disciples who followed Jesus, it's obvious, right, isn't it, that Judas became a follower of Jesus with an expectation. He had certain things that he thought uh, was going to happen if he followed Jesus. There were many people who turned away from following Jesus, but he wasn't one of them. He followed Jesus. The expectation that all of them had had something to do with the rumors that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was going to bring in the kingdom of God. What happened to Judas? The Bible, you know, never specifically says. Was it merely greed that caused him to betray Jesus? In verse 12 of John's gospel, we read that Judas was a thief that he used to take from the purse that he was entrusted with. Is that what prompted his betrayal? Clear enough from the Gospels that Judas thought his betrayal would do no real harm. In Matthew chapter 27, we read that when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and tried to return the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. It seems very evident that whatever Judas thought would happen, he didn't think that Jesus would be condemned. Is it okay to betray a friend just because you think no real harm will come? Wouldn't the betrayal itself be the harm? Another suggestion that people have made is that Judas had grown impatient with Jesus' methods and timeline. That he believed that Jesus was the Messiah, believed what he said about the kingdom of God, but he had expectations as to what that would look like. And the betrayal was a way to force a confrontation, to set in motion what would bring in the kingdom of God. Maybe he was thinking it would be something like the Maccabean revolt where things happened that set a series of things in motion that led to Israel for a time regaining its sovereignty. Well, that idea is certainly not as trite as being motivated by a few coins. But is it really any better? To want what God had promised, but to reject his timing and his way of achieving it, isn't that the same pattern as Adam's sin? Didn't he do that? That he wanted to grow into what it was, to be like God, to fulfill the image of God, but he just had another way of doing it and another 
timetable for doing it. But the Bible doesn't tell us what the motive of Judas was, and I suspect the reason for that is because in the end it doesn't really matter. Whether his motive was crass or noble, was still a betrayal, was still trickery, was still born out of mistrust in one way or another. Following Jesus had turned out to be not what Judas expected. The question now for him is how will he respond? So what does that mean for us? Does that mean that whenever following Jesus turns out to be not what you expected, and your faith is shaken, and you find yourself doubting or perhaps even doing the wrong thing, that you've come to the same place as Judas? Well, let me give you two examples from the Bible why you should not automatically think that. The first is John the Baptist. John obviously was waiting for the Messiah and the kingdom of God. He was uh, out in the wilderness preaching, and when Jesus came, he recognized him for who he was. He was waiting for the Messiah and for the kingdom of God. But it seems that John, too, well, like everybody, had a misunderstanding of who he was, what that kingdom was going to be like. And so John, you know, in his, in his, in his quirky kind of way, in his quirky living conditions, in his quirky diet, uh, being out in the desert, enjoyed some popularity for a time as people actually came out to him to hear what he had to say. And he continued to preach that message. It seemed that whatever John expected now that the Messiah came, he didn't expect to be put in prison. Or if he was, he didn't expect to have to stay there. Didn't the kingdom of God mean that something was going to be done about the corruption, about the injustice? And the Messiah and the kingdom that he represented turned out not to be what John was anticipating or expecting. And so in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 11, we're told that when John heard in prison what he was doing, he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the deaf hear, those who have leprosy are cured, the dead are raised, the good news is preached to the poor, and blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. And all of the things that Jesus says to tell John are things that the prophets spoke of. 
And Jesus goes on, if you uh, read further then, to, to praise John. But for a time, Jesus was not who he expected him to be. The kingdom was not what he expected it to be. The second example is that of Peter. He said, you remember to Jesus, he said, I'm willing, I'm willing to die for you. That, that was not bravado. Peter absolutely was ready and willing to die for Jesus, fighting to establish the kingdom of God. That's why he drew a sword. He is completely ready and willing to die for Jesus so that the kingdom of God could be established. What he was not ready for was to be upbraided by Jesus, to be told to put his sword away. And it was at that point that Peter became completely confused. Wasn't this the Messiah? Wasn't the kingdom of God going to be established? What kingdom in the history of the world has ever advanced against an adversary opposing it that didn't use violence? And so he follows at a distance, but when someone says to him, hey, you were with him, you're one of them, he says, you're mistaken, I don't know the man. I think Peter spoke the truth at that point. He didn't really know who Jesus was. He had a completely different expectation of what it would be to follow him. Jesus and the kingdom that he was proclaiming were, were turning out to be nothing like what Peter had imagined, and it shook him. The difference between a Judas and a John or a Judas and a Peter is in their response not only to being shaken that following Jesus is not what they were expecting, but how they handled their doubt, how they handled their sin. Judas recognized that he'd sinned in betraying Jesus, and he was sorrowful for it. He was filled with remorse, the Bible tells us. He said, I have sinned in betraying innocent blood. 2 Corinthians 7.10 tells us that godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. We don't have time this morning to explore the nuances of that. But if you're a follower of Jesus for any length of time, you're going to come up against something in life that will shake you, that will make you say, if, if God is sovereign, if Christ is on the throne, if I'm his child, this ought not to be. I've gotten something wrong. Come up against something that will make you question the things that you've thought. And you may very well find that many of the things you thought about Jesus and his kingdom and following him 
were wrong. The question is, how will you respond to it? How will you respond to God, to the situation, to your own doubt, to your own sin? And this is what I'd like you to see today, my dear friends. Christ is the seal of God's promise that he will accomplish good, not in spite of the darkness, but by it. We read that as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. And when he had gone, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son of Man, and he will glorify him at once. The Greek word that he uses there means immediately. The next thing that happens here is going to bring glory to God. And what's going to happen? The Son of Man is going to be betrayed. He's going to be falsely accused, enviously attacked, politically scapegoated, and condemned. He's about to be crucified. Where's the glory in that? You know, I told you last week when we were looking at a passage in the book of Isaiah that the Hebrew word for glory is the word kavod, which means weightiness, weight. And we can see a weightiness to what's going on here. But the Greek word that we translate glory, the one that's used here, is the word doxa. And doxa is glory of quite another sort. The Greek word means splendid, wonderful. Beautiful, bright. And we might look at the resurrection of Jesus and call that glorious, bright, but his death? How is that bright? It makes no sense. And the darkness is real. Jesus had taken the bread, he went out, John tells us, and it was night. This is not merely a time of day detail that John gives to us. You read through John's gospel, John never uses day and night, light and dark, for merely meteorological considerations. I am not exaggerating when I say that the darkest day in the history of the world was about to take place. And in the face of it, and referring to it, Jesus says, now is the Son of Man glorified. How can Jesus possibly say that? How can we possibly believe it? 
But let me direct you back to the opening paragraph of John's gospel where he speaks of the word that was with God and the word that was God, the word that became flesh, who was the light that shone in the darkness. And he said, in the darkness did not overcome it. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The light will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. And in the very moment that the light in his oh-so-very-human eyes went out, the light of glory shone forth. And Peter's sins were paid for. And John's sins were paid for. And Judas, clinging to his worldly sorrow, rejected what Jesus paid for. In Jesus' death, your sins are paid for if you'll receive the gift. The death of Christ is incomplete without the resurrection. But then again, there would be no resurrection if there was no death. We are about to fellowship in the Lord's Supper. It's a proclamation of his death until he comes. His resurrection is glorious, but don't rush past the glory of his death. In the darkest day of history, the light shone in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. And I want you to see something in that. God accomplished his greatest good, not despite the darkness of the death of Christ, but in and through that very darkness. And so when, not if, if you live long enough, when, not if, it happens to you that following Jesus is not what you expected it to be. Not what you thought it would be. And you're confused, and doubting, and denying, and maybe even rejecting. God calls you to repentance. Not a worldly sorrow which leads to death, but a true repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. And you might say, how can that be? How could God call me to that? 
And friends, I say to you, look at the cross. Christ is the seal of God's promise that he will accomplish good, not in spite of the darkness, but by it. How will you respond? Mm-hmm.